I'm Emily. And I'm Alicia. And, and we're, we're dead, dead on. In this podcast, we discuss topics that are considered harmful and disturbing. If you are sensitive to talk involving rape, violence, abuse, morbidity, or murder, please opt out of listening. All right, fam, I need your help. This is our first missing person case, and it's going to be an ongoing endeavor. Will you help me get justice for Susan Keeley's family? Today we're headed up to the mid-north coast of New South Wales, Australia, to a little town called Bellingen. And when I say small town, I mean tiny. The population was only about 3,000 as of the 2016 census. According to traveler.com.au, it's a bohemian town that is heaven on earth. It does look stunningly beautiful from the photos. From what I understand, it's a bit like Byron Bay before Byron became super commercialized and full of rich people masquerading as hippies. One night, I was lying in bed and someone popped through a DM to the pod's Facebook page. In the DM was a link to this case. So I asked the person if they wanted me to cover it, and they said yes. In fact, the missing person is his partner's mother. I started digging into the case, and a few things popped out at me immediately. For one, I was struck that there is so little information about the case online, especially because she is still missing. For two, there is currently no reward for information associated with her case. It's a concern that we're not incentivizing people to come forward, especially considering a high-profile case that I've covered has a million-dollar reward. Surely, Susan Keeley's case deserves a reward as well. I'm going to work on that. Our missing person, Susan Marie Keeley, was last seen on December 1st, 1989, in Bellingen. She was 33 years old at the time and would be about 65 years old now. She was approximately 176 centimeters or 5 foot 7 in height with a slender build. She had sun-kissed brown hair and brown eyes. She is the mother of two young girls who were 13 and 8 at the time. As I want to protect their privacy, I will be referring to them as the 13-year-old and the 8-year-old throughout the case. First, let's go through the timeline of Susan's movements on the day she disappeared. Susan lived at a property in the nearby town of Kalang. At about 8.30 a.m. on December 1st, 1989, Susan watched her 8-year-old daughter climb onto the school bus. At about 8.45 a.m., Susan decided to hitchhike into Bellingen with some local residents. They recalled her being in good spirits, telling them she was planning to spend the day with her friends. At about 9 a.m., Susan was dropped off at the intersection of Church and Hyde Streets. Between 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., Susan's movements are unknown and the timeline becomes blurry. 
Sometime between 11 a.m. and 1.30 p.m., Susan went to her friend's apartment at number 2 Short Street. She hung out with her friends for somewhere between 30 to 90 minutes. When she left, she told her friends that she was headed to the bank. She also mentioned possibly visiting the pub as well. Her whereabouts after leaving number 2 Short Street are unknown. On December 8, 1989, one week after Susan disappeared, her ex-husband, Robert Smith, reported her missing. He and their 13-year-old daughter lived in Vala, about an hour drive from where Susan lived. For the next 21 years, the case stagnated and went cold. Then, in December of 2010, the coroner's court performed an inquest into Susan Keeley's case. Throughout the three-day inquest, 18 witnesses provided testimonies and attempted to shed light onto the case. A number of possibilities were explored. Number one, did Susan's ex-husband, Robert Smith, have something to do with her disappearance? Susan and Robert had gotten divorced just a few months prior to her disappearance. Following the divorce, the 13-year-old daughter went to live with Robert, and the 8-year-old daughter went to live with Susan. Detective Senior Constable Kelly French told the court that he suspected that Robert Smith had something to do with Susan's disappearance and likely death. French said, quote, Smith, above all others, had a motive. He was to have to sell his home, a house that he himself built, and would have to provide his ex-wife with a substantial amount of money, about $35,000. Keeley was also seeking full-time custody of both her children, and history suggests that in most cases the mother would receive full custody of her children in a dispute. Smith had been violent to Keeley in the past and had made verbal threats against her life. But this suspicion was stymied in one particular area. French admitted, quote, If Smith was responsible for the disappearance of Keeley, I find it hard to believe that he would have made no attempt to establish the eight-year-old daughter's whereabouts and welfare after having not heard from her for a week. When Susan's close friend, Anne, was on the stand, she was questioned about Robert Smith. Anne elaborated that the relationship had begun to deteriorate when the couple lost a baby. She described the nature of Susan and Robert's relationship, saying, quote, I never saw physical violence, but Susan came to me. They had been arguing when police had been called. She needed to get away from the house. She would complain of being sore. I do know they would have a number of fights, and she would come to me crying on a few occasions. When asked to speculate if Susan's ex-husband had something to do with Susan's disappearance, Anne said, quote, I don't think Robert has it in him to do anything, a sentiment which is echoed by a few members of Susan's family. Now, we know that, statistically speaking, you're more likely to be murdered by your romantic partner than anyone else. Despite this, the unresolved family law court matters, and the opinions of Detective Senior Constable French, the coroner did not believe that Robert Smith was responsible for Susan's disappearance and possible death. The coroner went on to say, quote, To the extent that he has been subject to rumor and innuendo, I think he has been maligned. Which is a very fancy, highly technical way of saying, yeah, nah. Number two, was Susan about to go to the police with incriminating information? Did someone make sure she would never say anything by making her disappear? 
that close friend of Susan's, Anne, gave the following evidence before the court. Anne said that Susan was murdered because she was just about to speak to the police. Apparently, Susan's friend, a man named Daryl Drabsch, died in a car accident. While police said there was no evidence to suggest the accident was a result of foul play, Susan and Anne believed otherwise. On the day of Daryl's funeral, Anne recalled Susan saying, quote, It wasn't an accident. It was murder. It wasn't a case of the brakes failing. The last time Anne laid eyes on Susan was three weeks before she disappeared. Anne recalled that Susan had visited with two men. All three of them were intoxicated. Anne grew very concerned, saying, quote, I recall both of the males said to Susan, I am going to kill you one day. They said it more than once, quite a number of times. I tried to find information about Daryl Drapsch and his death, but unfortunately there wasn't even an obituary online. When asked what she thought happened to Susan, Anne said, quote, Her dad was coming to see her on December 14th, and she was so excited. I believe Sue has been murdered. There is no way Sue would ever leave her kids like that. She went on to explain that she'd been worried about Susan, as Susan had become involved with substance abuse and mixing with, quote, a bad group of people. Which brings me to number three. Did Susan overdose? Was her body then dumped by her associates so they wouldn't be held accountable? Susan was known to use alcohol, cannabis, and possibly harder drugs, too. It was rumored around Bellingen that she died of a drug overdose and her body was dumped in a nearby landfill. Now, you know how small towns gossip. I don't know how much validity there is to this rumor, but I think it still needs to be explored. Robert Smith heard these rumors and reported them to the police, but they didn't seem to take this matter seriously. Detective Senior Constable French said, quote, It could be that Smith fabricated this information in an attempt to turn the attention of police away from himself and to others. It seems to me that the police decided they had their main suspect, no matter how little evidence supported this conclusion, and it seems that they were reluctant to explore any other possibilities which not only let Susan and her children down, but likely derailed the entire investigation. The coroner, however, explored the possibility that Susan had died of an overdose, and that, quote, others who were involved disposed of her body in the hope that their own drug use would not come to notice. But, like the other two theories, there's no evidence to support this conclusion. The court heard that the local council had laid landfill near the Short Street location near Susan's last confirmed sighting. While this area should have been investigated for human remains, the coroner pointed out that this never happened. He believed that this was a significant oversight. Detective Senior Constable French described Susan's lifestyle with the following quote From all accounts, Keeley lived from day to day. Keeley relied on hitchhiking, neighbors, and friends for transport. She was a regular cannabis user and had a drinking habit. She was well-known at the local federal hotel in Bellingen, with her friends also abusing drugs and alcohol. Susan's brother Gary was extremely disappointed in the police investigation. He reportedly felt that it lacked leadership, experience, and direction. And Gary wasn't the only one. 
After reviewing the investigation, Deputy State Coroner Scott Mitchell said, quote, The investigation conducted by Bellingham Police was quite unsystematic and unscientific. I agree with Ms. Keeley's brother that the investigation had been hapless and hopeless and below standard. His viewpoint is that the police let his sister down, perhaps because of their perceptions regarding her character and lifestyle and those of her friends, which is a valid point. Was the investigation shoddy because the small town didn't have a police force equipped to handle such an investigation? Or was Susan's case not seriously investigated because police didn't consider it important enough? You heard French's description of Susan's lifestyle. It wouldn't be the first time a family was let down by the system because their family member wasn't the media's ideal of the perfect victim. But that shouldn't matter. The wheels of justice should turn for every victim, no matter their circumstances. If they did judge her for her lifestyle and subsequently avoid her case, that's a stunning indictment on the entire justice system. The coroner pointed out that the failure to maintain proper records hindered the investigation. As such, there wasn't enough evidence to make a conclusion about Susan's fate. The coroner elaborated, quote, The overwhelming bulk of evidence of those who knew her is that she would not have simply walked away, turning her back on her children and, particularly, her eight-year-old daughter, whose primary caring parent she was. He concluded that Susan Keeley likely died on or shortly after December 1st, 1989, probably in or around Bellingen. Because there was so little information about this case, I joined a few Bellingen local Facebook groups to hear from locals. I shared links to her missing person page and had two people contact me with information. The first confirmed what we already knew about Susan's whereabouts that morning but the second may have added information that I haven't seen anywhere else. Let's call this person Alex to protect their identity. As previously mentioned, Susan didn't have a car of her own. She was known to hitchhike to get around. While Alex didn't know Susan personally, Alex had given Susan a ride a few weeks before she disappeared. After that introduction, Alex knew Susan by sight, Around lunchtime on December 1st, 1989, Alex was driving towards the roundabout intersection between Calling Road and Bowerville Road. Alex spotted Susan standing on the side of Calling Road. It appeared to Alex that Susan was likely hitchhiking back home. As Alex reached their turnoff, they saw a white four-wheel drive ute cruise past. The four-wheel drive had been headed towards Briarfield when it swung sharply at the last minute back towards Calling. Alex said, quote, I can't guarantee the car picked her up, but as nobody else saw her, I have always wondered. Alex went to the police more than once with this information, but they were never interviewed. This seems to have haunted them ever since, as they continue to wonder what happened to Susan and her little daughter they'd given a lift home. If Alex did, in fact, see Susan that day, they could very well be the last person to confirm seeing Susan alive and the only person to confirm that Susan left the apartment at number 2 Short Street. Sadly, many feel that the essential facts of this case are lost to the sands of time. That Susan's whereabouts will always remain a mystery. Here's the thing, though. That doesn't work for me. Susan Keeley's body has never been found. Susan's daughters have been missing their mom for the past 32 years. Imagine having to grow up without your mother. 
but not only that, not even knowing what happened to her. So what do I think happened? I've been turning it over in my mind, plotting out her movements on a map, speaking to people who knew her or knew of her. People say that Susan lived a high-risk lifestyle. She used drugs. She hitchhiked. People point to these things and say, see, this is why you don't do X. But that isn't fair. It's not fair to Susan, and it gives us a false sense of security. Life isn't orderly like that. Frankly, it negates the difficulty that women experience for simply existing in this world. Jill Marr was just walking home after having drinks. Eurydice Dixon had left a gig and was in sight of her home. Aya Misarwe was attacked as she walked home after attending a comedy show. Allison Baden-Clay was in the safety of her own home with her own husband. Elizabeth Fritzel was in the safety of her own home with her own damn father. So get the fuck out of here with that victim-blaming bullshit. Blaming someone's lifestyle for the fate they suffer points the crosshairs at every single last one of us. Because sometimes the people we trust the most are wolves in sheep's clothing. I'm not saying this to be hyperbolic or put the fear of God in you, but to remind you, with love, to trust your gut. If someone or something makes your stomach turn, pay attention, heed the warning, and get the fuck out of there. Are you pissed off too? Do you want to get involved? Good. We need your help. But first, some ground rules. Number one, don't name and shame anyone. Do not share names of persons of interest. Do not share photos of persons of interest. If you have information about persons involved with Susan Keeley's disappearance, please contact Crime Stoppers or the Coffs Harbor Police Station. Number two, don't dox anyone. That means not sharing names, phone numbers, social media accounts, email addresses at all. You might have a red-hot lead, but we are all deserving of privacy, even persons of interest. Please pass on relevant leads and contact details to Crime Stoppers or the Coffs Harbor Police Station. If you don't feel comfortable contacting either Crime Stoppers or the Coffs Harbor Police Station, privately send me the information and I'll contact them for you and keep your identity anonymous. Okay, we've laid out the rules, so here's the next steps. Are you in the Coffs Harbor area? If you don't mind a bit of archival research, I'd love an extra set of hands up there. I've been searching for more news coverage of Susan Keeley's case and information about Daryl Drapsch. All of the old articles from the Coffs Coast Advocate are at the Coffs Harbor Regional Museum. If you'd be keen, please head over to the museum, find old articles on the Susan Keeley case, and scan them if possible. Same goes for Daryl Drapsch. Then we can build an online database of source material to reference. I'll add the address to the show notes. Do you know anyone who's 50 plus years old that lives in the Mid-North Coast? Ask them if they remember the case. Ask them if they knew Susan Keeley or knew of her. Show them her missing person page on the Crime Stoppers website. Do you know how to get a reward for information added to a missing person case? Please contact me and let me know. I've been trying to figure that out. If you can't appeal to someone's decency, appeal to their greed, right? Surely someone knows something. A reward might be what we need to get someone talking. 
I'll add a link to our missing person page on Crime Stoppers to the show notes. I made a Google map to plot out Susan Keeley's last known movements. I created a layer for Bellingen, the location of her last known sighting. Another for the possible sighting at the intersection between Cowling Road and Bowerville Road. Another for Cowling, where she lived with her 8-year-old daughter. And another for Vala, where her ex-husband and 13-year-old daughter lived. The closer we can track the timeline of her movements on the day, the better chance we have of figuring out what happened. If you have information and would like to contribute to the map, I'd be very grateful. I'll add the link to the show notes. Also, please share links to Susan's missing person page in missing persons groups. Ask people who have information about the case to contact Crime Stoppers. I'll add those links to the show notes. Since this is an ongoing case, I'll release minisodes in between main episodes to keep everyone updated on the case. If you want to get involved, we will be discussing this case in the Facebook group. Well, what are you waiting for? Hop on Facebook and join it. Okay, that's enough from me. Trust your gut. Get involved to help solve Susan Keeley's case. And, for fuck's sake, stop committing crimes. Okay, bye. If you love us, and we hope you do, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite streaming service. You can catch us on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at our handle, Dead On Podcast. Special thanks to Fuzz Douglas for our kick-ass theme music. You can find him on SoundCloud. We'll drop a link in the show notes. I'm Emily. And I'm Alicia. And we're Dead On.